All right, Genesis 14. That's our sermon text. This is God's holy word. Let's give it our full attention now. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Keterlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Keterlamer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlamer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shavakiriathayim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as Alparan, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hezazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphar, fell king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Our New Testament reading is Hebrews chapter 6, 
verse 13 through 7, verse 3. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray now. Thank you for your word, O Lord. Thank you that you shine the light of the gospel so clearly, that you illumine the path ahead of us so clearly for us, so brightly by your word. Lord, we pray that you would illumine our minds, capture our affections, and strengthen our wills for new obedience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some moments in Abram's story we all know well um, from, from our Sunday school days. We remember Abram's call when, when God uh, shows up, calls him, Abram comes, Genesis chapter 12, Abram, Abram responds in faith. We remember the promises that God made to Abram. Uh, we, we might think of Abram's life and we think of Isaac and that, that moment where Abram has to go up mount, the, the mountain there and sacrifice almost his son Isaac uh, to the Lord. Um, but Genesis 14, the chapter we just read, is probably not one of those moments. It's one of those moments in Abram's story that is less iconic and is uh, perhaps more uh, one, one we don't remember as much. Which is too bad because of all the stories of Abram's life, this is one of the coolest stories in Abram's life. I mean, he goes out and he has a battle. He goes out and he fights. He's the underdog. He, he's the classic hero in this story. This is one of the high points of his life. One writer says this is his Mount of Transfiguration moment where he is riding high. He's acting like the king that uh, he's foreshadowing the kings of Israel who will come, foreshadowing Christ, the king who will come. But, but here he is in this chapter, this great, strong leader and hero. He leads his men into battle. He defeats the bad guys. He rescues his, his poor nephew Lot. Um, 
And, and, and then he meets this mysterious priest named Melchizedek. He's blessed by Melchizedek. And then he stands firm on the moral high ground. He's not compromised. And it, it, all the success doesn't go to his head as he faces this easy reward money at the end. So he's, he's brave. He's decisive. He's gracious. He's generous. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great hero here. Uh, the ideal king of Israel in many ways in this chapter. It's also here a, a story we should remember not only because Abram's uh, this is Abram's greatest, greatest uh, highlight, probably. But it also for us lifts up Abram as the great example, once again, of living by faith and trusting the promises of God uh, and responding to the situations around us with courage, like Abram does here, and with grace, like Abram does here. And also that example, once again, of waiting on the Lord in, in faith. So let's, let's look at this together now. Chapter 14 of Genesis. Let's unpack it. The first, uh, the first heading is this. The king who acts with courage and grace. The king who acts with courage and grace. As the story begins, there's a war brewing. And for the first few verses, Abram is not mentioned. This is not Abram's war. He's just a pilgrim. He's a nomad. He doesn't own any real estate in the promised land yet. Um, he's just there as a sojourner in the land. Uh, so no one's fighting against him. But these five kings who are in this general region band together to rebel against four kings who have an alliance and are kind of lording it over them. We read that this king named Keterlaumer has been in charge here for a, some time, for, for, uh, for 12 years. He's been ruling over them with his alliance of three other kings. And then finally, the 13th year, the, the five kings in Abram's region have had enough. They're going to rebel. They band together and they fight against him. Uh, Keterlamer and his kings say, no, we're not going to tolerate that. They sweep in and they start conquering once again. And they're, they're, they're crushing the rebellion. Uh, and it seems like they're, they're doing a pretty quick job of it as they, as they, as they pass through the region. But the kings near Abram, again, they band together to fight against him in the valley of Sidim. So you've got four kings against five kings. Um, but Keterlamer, his, his alliance of four kings is the more powerful one. So in this battle, they, they dominate. And the, the five rebellious kings uh, are, are routed. They start falling into these, these asphalt pits in, in this valley that they're fighting in. The rest of them flee to the mountains. And in particular, the text highlights for us the fact that the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah are defeated and are forced, uh, forced to retreat into the mountains. And then their cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, are plundered um, and, and, and it's highlighted for us that part of their plunder is Lot. Lot and all his possessions are taken captive. Now let's pause there for a minute. Think with me about Lot's situation. Is Lot here as this poor, innocent bystander, kind of caught up in this battle by no fault of his own? Well, no. Not, not, not at all. Um, he is, uh, he is landed in this trouble because earlier on, uh, previously, we saw that uh, he's there with Abram in the promised land. Abram says, you, you pick what portion of the land you like. And Lot looks out at the region next to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, oh, this looks, like a, this looks like a good deal. I can choose this best part of the land for myself. And we see Lot grasping at earthly gain 
If he was a cartoon figure, he'd have dollar signs uh, where his eyes should be. That, that's a lot. Um, and he doesn't think about uh, the, uh, the danger of being so close to a wicked city like Sodom. He doesn't think about what that's going to do to his family, his daughters, his wife. Um, he looks with the eyes of the flesh. doesn't look with the eyes of faith. doesn't look trusting in the Lord. He just has those dollar signs for eyes. He falls in love with the present world. Uh, it's a lure. It's promise. And he moves towards Sodom. That's what's landed him in this trouble in the first place. And what we see here as we read this is a warning, once again, about about a life that, that takes steps to move away from godliness and closer and closer towards Sodom. Originally, Lot was not living in Sodom. But by the time chapter 14 of Genesis rolls around, we find out he was in Sodom because of this lack of faith and a desire just for personal gain. We need to take that warning very seriously. Lot's warning. Um, we feel that same tug on our hearts. Like Lot, we often are not looking with the eyes of faith, looking through the lens of the promises of God. We just see something we want, and we don't ask, is it for God's glory? Is this part of his purpose? We just, we just decide, we'll, we'll take it. We don't say, well, this, well, this choice, um, this, this thing that I want, will it promote my holiness? Will it, will it be good for my family and, and the holiness of my family? We just see what we want, and we, we inch closer and closer to looking just like the world around us. We fool ourselves into thinking that we can maintain a, a faithful Christian life even when we're living lives that are identical uh, with, with those who, who do not believe in Christ. One of the writers commenting on this passage says this, we need to remember that it isn't easy to live in a pigsty without ending up smelling like a pig. He says, while God can easily rescue the godly from the judgment that is to come on the wicked, it's not as easy as we think to remain godly while living in the close company of the wicked. This is what Lot, is, this is what Lot has, has done. He moves towards Sodom, and now he gets what Sodom gets. Uh, he's not a poor, innocent casualty of war here. His sin has landed him in this mess. He's a captive. He's lost everything now. Um, do you pity him? It's a little bit hard to pity Lot, I think. Uh, right? He's getting what he deserved, isn't he? Um, and, and we know, if you know what happens later on in Genesis, this situation that's happening here is not going to change him. He's going to make the same mistake back all over again. After he gets rescued in this chapter, he's going to land right back in Sodom again a few chapters later. Right? It doesn't change him. It's hard to, to pity Lot here. He deserves what he's getting. Deserves to be a captive. Uh, he, he deserves to, be, uh, uh, to, to have his possessions stolen, uh, plundered. He, he probably expected to stay a captive as well. I mean, he's probably thinking, who, who would rescue me? His new friends, the people of Sodom, they've just been defeated. The king of Sodom, his forces have been crushed. He's a captive too. Um, who's, who's, going to, who's going to rescue him? Maybe he thought of Abram, but he treated Abram pretty badly um, in, in grasping for himself the better portion. Um, uh, so, so he's probably not thinking Abram will, will want to rescue him. And even if he did, would he dare to? I mean, the force that has captured Lot might might be a smaller raiding force, it seems like, from the, from the text. But behind it is a powerful army, this alliance of kings. You could easily 
overwhelm anything that Abram might try to do. Nevertheless, we see someone escapes from the battle and runs to Abram, tells him the news, Lot's been captured. It's interesting the text tells us uh, here that at this point that Lot is Abram's brother. Before it told us, the narrator told us that uh, Lot was Abram's nephew. So the narrator's not confused. He knows that Lot is Abram's nephew, but he's, he's just reminding us of that close kinship there, that relationship, that, that flesh and blood relationship. How does Abram respond when he finds out about poor Lot? Well, he doesn't roll his eyes at his nephew's foolishness and say, ah, he got what was coming to him. He made his bed, now he can lie in it. Um, he wouldn't be wrong to say that. Lot has gotten what was coming to him, hasn't he? Um, he doesn't deserve rescue or kindness. But Abram is gracious. He's merciful. He acts as his brother's keeper. He's full of compassion for Lot. He's full of loyalty and kindness, steadfast love. Right? He, he's full of that covenant love for his brother, his nephew. Um, Abram was treated badly by Lot. But Abram has received from God that this kind of loyal, steadfast love. Abram was not faithful to the Lord. We saw that in his trip down to Egypt. But the Lord showed him grace. And Abram, as the one who's received grace, is now overflowing with grace to others. He's received steadfast love, and now he's showing others this same steadfast love. So he loves his nephew still. He, and he's going to fulfill his responsibilities to God as, the, uh, as, uh, as his kinsman still. Um, so he doesn't treat how he's going to treat. He doesn't treat Lot based on how Lot treated him, but on how God has treated him. He must understand the risk. Abram going to rescue Lot is a risk. Uh, he's putting his life on the line for him. He's putting the lives of his 318 servants on the line. He's putting the future of Sarai on the line here. But again, he's not looking at the situation with the eyes of the flesh. He's, he's looking with the eyes of faith. He's, he's, not, he's not looking at Lot and calculating, okay, what does Lot deserve uh, 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 and, and, and is it going to cost me too much to be worth it? Um, that's what we often do. We see it person in need or a needy situation, we say, well, does this person deserve my kindness? Does that person deserve my love and my loyalty? Have they forfeited it by how they treated me? Right? We make these calculations. Or we might say, uh, what's the risk to me? Maybe I'm willing to show them some kindness, but what's the risk that I'm going to take on? Um, is it going to be inconvenient? Take too much of my time, too much of my energy, too much of my emotional investment? Now, the Bible does call us to have godly wisdom about, about these things, um, to be stewards of our limited resources, wise about, about these things. But that should not keep us from being generous. That, sh that, that should be the rails on which our generosity runs. It should not stop us from being gracious and taking godly risks when it's appropriate to, reaching out in kindness to those who don't deserve it at all. This is what Abram does. He has the eyes of faith here. He knows the Lord's promise that he will be with him and that he will bless him. So he does his duty to his undeserving brother. Um, he doesn't hesitate at all. He doesn't show any fear. He's, as, I, as I said as we began, he's, he is this moment King Abram. 
in all his glory. Uh, he, he takes his men, 318 of them, uh, arms them all, and he sets off in pursuit of this force that's captured Lot. As night falls, it's, it's under cover of darkness. He divides his force. We can come at them from several uh, positions, and then he attacks. It's a complete rout, no resistance. He slaughters them, single-handedly destroys and scatters the enemy. He gets back all the people. He gets back all the stolen plunder, and uh, he brings it all. He brings it all back, um, including including Lot. Here is, here is King Abram reaching out in grace and courage, kindness, fighting to defeat the enemies of God's people when they were captive, saving wandering sinners from the judgment they deserved. Does he remind you of anyone? A king who doesn't stand far off and doesn't say, well, they don't, they, they don't deserve this kind of grace and love. Um, a king whose people have spited him and spurned him and walked away from him over and over, yet this king still loves his people, yearns for his people, desires uh, to have them, and, and is full of compassion for them. This, the, a king who, who has that kind of steadfast love right down into his bones for his people. Um, a king who comes and, and uh, rescues them without a second thought, who is full of courage and boldness as he does this. A king who takes up a whip and drives out sinners from his father's house, but a king is also gentle and lowly in heart. We see this wonderful picture here in Abram of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the king who not only knows that there's a risk of his life, but knows that it will cost his life to rescue his undeserving people. When we, when we read Abram's story and we see, uh, we see him having a good week here in Genesis 14, uh, we can think, well, we can say, well, that's me. Right? I, that, I, I'm called to be the hero uh, like, like Abram. We want to see ourselves in Abram and we should aspire to, to, example, uh, to, 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 to follow his example here. But more often, we are a lot in this story. We're the sinner who needs saving. Uh, and and it's, it's our King, our Lord Jesus, who comes to save us. So Abram wins this great victory. But then the story continues. It's not done. Another king shows up at this point in the story. And this brings us to our second point, which is this. The king is blessed by the priest of God Most High. The king is blessed by the priest of God Most High. So verses 18 to 20, we get Melchizedek appearing. Uh, Melchizedek is a, is a mysterious figure in the Bible. Uh, very little that we know about him. He has an important role to play. Uh, we read about him a bit there at Hebrews as well. Uh, but there's not much, not much said about him. Um, his name, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. His name identifies him with one who's a king who carries out God's perfect will. Um, and then he's also called the king of Salem. That's the Place, that, that's his kingdom, Salem, which means peace. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Um, he's also here called a priest, the priest of God Most High. So he's, he's a mediator between God and man. Here's one who is both king and priest, uh, who, who rules over his people and intercedes for his people. Melchizedek steps into the story and um, blesses Abram. And Abram responds with a tenth of tribute to Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek's purpose here in the story is to, is to give this blessing on Abram, to celebrate the victory that Abram has won. He, he, he blesses Abram. He, he calls on God to bless Abram. He refers to God as God Most High. Um, and then he, he also goes on and he, he blesses God as well, calling praise to the Lord, lifting up, lifting up God in praise and glory. He's recognizing, the king of Melchizedek here recognizes Abram didn't win this victory by himself. It's God who won this victory and God who deserves the glory for this victory. Looking at this, we might ask, why, why does Abram need this? Why does this happen? Why does Abram need a priest to bless him? I mean, God has already blessed Abram directly. God has already given him wonderful blessings. Abram himself acts as a king and a priest both already. He, he can offer sacrifices himself. He builds altars, offers sacrifices. Later on in Israel's history, the kingship and the priesthood will be separated in the time of Moses. The Judah will be the, the tribe where the kings come from. Levi will be the tribe where the priests come from. And, and, and uh, you're not to mix those. Uh, kings aren't supposed to act as priests. But here, before that, at this point, we have Abram who's acting both as king and priest. He doesn't need a priest, does he? Maybe, maybe he does. Maybe he does. This is, I think, why we see this figure of Melchizedek here, who's, even, even though this, this uh, moment uh, in Genesis 14 is one of Abram's glory, Melchizedek is, is towering over him. King of righteousness, king of peace, priest of Most High God who blesses Abram. He's in a position of authority over Abram. Why does Abram, in his moment of victory, need this priest? I think it's showing us that um, even at his best, Abram's not good enough. Uh, Even at his best, Abram needs a priest too. Um, Abram is still a sinner. Even at his best, he still is. Uh, He doesn't deserve blessing from God. He still deserves the just wrath of God. And just like every other sinner, Abram needs someone to stand in between him and God and call down God's blessing on him and make peace with God for him. And what kind of priest does Abram need? He needs one like Melchizedek. Um, Melchizedek's priesthood shows us something about the kind of priest Abram needs and the kind of priest that we need. Uh, Melchizedek's priesthood, the author of the Hebrews, points out to us, we don't get a genealogy for Melchizedek. Don't know who his parents are. He seems to just come out of nowhere. And he has this permanent priesthood. He doesn't have a successor after him. He just holds his priesthood as a permanent thing. Um, and, and, and the author of the Hebrews is saying, well, well, that's the kind of priest that we need, a, a permanent priest. Not like the Levitical priests who later on in the Old Testament would... Um, uh, one would succeed another and would succeed another. Uh, we, we need a permanent priest. This is pointing us to our priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one so much greater than Melchizedek, the eternal priest, so much greater than Melchizedek. Christ is the priest who is priest forever for his people, who continually blesses his people, who uh, paid the sacrifice for this blessing, with his own blood. We need him on our worst days, and we need him on our best days. Our high priest, who is the one who blesses us for his own sake. 
God blesses Abram uh, through this priest. And then as the story continues, we see all this blessing, but then we see a, a one, one more test as the, as the narrative comes to an end. One more test for Abram. Uh, and this is our final point. King Abram waits for the promise of God. King Abram waits for the promise of God. So at the end of the chapter, verses 21 to 24, we switch from this towering figure of Melchizedek, king of righteousness, priest of Most High God, and we, we, we come down to the king of Sodom, who is probably as evil as Melchizedek is righteous. Um, what do we see in the king of Sodom? No words here from him of praise to God or thanks to God. Um, he's not looking with the eyes of faith at this situation. He just sees a purely uh, human, man-made thing. Uh, he was captured. Abram saved him. So he's going to say thank you to Abram with, by giving him some of, some of the possessions. Um, he, he's cutting a deal with Abram. He says in verse 21, Give me the persons. You take the goods for yourself. Um, he is going to keep the servants, the slaves, the subjects. Abram, you can have, you can have the money. Um, it's quite a deal for Abram, isn't it? Th- th- this would be... This would be a, a get-rich-quick scheme for Abram that, that would work out pretty well. Um, this would be a massive amount of wealth. This is all the wealth of the king of Sodom, right? the whole city just given to Abram in an instant. You might say Abram deserves it, right? He risked his life for this. He put his life on the line for this. It's what he deserves to save these sinners. Surely he deserves a little bit of compensation, a little bit of reward for, for what he's done here. Um, and, and maybe Abram, Abram might think, well, maybe this is God's way of blessing him. Maybe this is part of God's plan, this opportunity here. God has promised a glorious inheritance. God has promised that he would bless him richly. Um, maybe Abram could take these resources and then he could trade them for the land. And he, could, he, could, he could speed up God's plan and he could inherit the land now. Remember, he doesn't own any part of this land yet, and maybe he could take this possession and buy up as much of the promised land as he wanted, here and now. Have it quicker. No more being a pilgrim here. No more this life in the gap between the promise and the reality, waiting on the Lord. He can just hit skip and move from the hard work of waiting on the Lord, patient obedience, to enjoying the inheritance. You could hear Satan whispering these things just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, just like he would later whisper in the ear of our Lord Jesus in the desert. There's an easier way to get what you want. Uh, there's, uh, there's an easier way. Stop waiting. Stop submitting. Stop suffering. Stop obeying. Stop being patient. You deserve the inheritance now. Forget waiting on the Lord. Just grasp it now. Take the inheritance that you want now. Skip the cross. Go straight to the crown. That's the temptation here. And we ourselves struggle with these same temptations. Um, Living in the gap between the promise and the reality is hard. Being patient under suffering is hard. And maybe it's not even necessary. We don't have to wait on the Lord to enjoy the good things that we want to enjoy. We can just claim them for ourselves. Surely, with the serving that we've already done for the Lord, we deserve a little bit of blessing here and now. How does the person who lives by faith respond to that kind of temptation? Abram looks at what the king of Sodom is offering. Riches, 
influence, security. And he looks at what God is offering. Eternal inheritance. Far greater than the pleasures of the present world. And when you look at it with the eyes of faith, Abram says there's no question what you choose. The choice is, the choice is plain. As Jim Elliot so famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Abram is going to wait on the Lord. He's going to say no to this, and he's going to wait on the Lord, wait on what the Lord will bring. He won't take a sandal strap. uh, He won't take a single thread. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to take credit for blessing him. Um, He wants everyone to know that God Most High, and only God Most High, is the one who's the possessor of heaven and earth who blesses his people. God won the victory. God deserves the glory. And God is the one who will give his blessing in his time, in his way. And so Abram is going to wait. One writer commenting on this says this, God's time to give him the land had not yet come. And Abram would rather wait for God's time, even if he might die waiting, than stretch out his hand to snatch the forbidden fruit. Even if he might die waiting, and he will die waiting, not inheriting the land yet. Um, What about you, brothers and sisters? In that moment of temptation, would you rather die waiting than stretch out your hand and snatch the forbidden fruit? Wait patiently on the Lord, then grasp at what God has said not yet to. Where does that kind of faith come from? It doesn't come from inside ourselves. It comes from our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who resisted every temptation, waited on the Lord, endured the cross, and whose humble patience was then rewarded. So ask him for that faith. Go to him for that faith. Pray that he would give you that kind of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity with which your word uh, lays bare our hearts and uh, the, the, the struggle of the life of faith. Father, we thank you for your grace to your servant, Abram. We thank you for uh, also the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our Savior and that in him uh, we can be strengthened in faith. Lord, strengthen us uh, to live in the gap, uh, to live with our eyes fixed on what lies ahead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.